I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch suffers from an incurable brain cloud. Oh, I wish. Ugh, I wish. You get to meet Meg Ryan thrice. Thrice. You get to go on adventures. You get to commit thrice. suicide, which fails. Thrice. Oh, I just like saying thrice. Thrice. Hey, hey. What, wait, I don't know. Can we start everything over? <laughs> it just made a noise. And that was it. It's not a noise I've made before. It wasn't a joke. It was just a, I can't think of a word here. I'm going to have audio come out of my mouth. Audio energy. Yeah. <laughs> you essentially used one of those uh, weirding devices from Dune at me, and I do consider it an act of violence. Uh, what if that was the noise? Sorry, it's a weirding module. I Just oh, to sorry. clarify. Yeah, if you could write an apology for that one, that's a big one. <laughs> um, I'm going to be like, dear homophobe Frank Herbert, I'm very sorry to report that. <laughs> what if that was the noise I made when I shit my pants? And I've never done it before, and... I'm just covering for it right now in this podcast, so you don't know I shit my pants. Uh, just to clarify, Three! I would be, <laughs> was, I would be I immensely impressed if you had just shit your pants for the first time. I've right never now. shit my pants. If you shit, this is the worst way to start a new month about love. Yeah, I imagine you shit your pants for like two years when you were a child. Okay, but I mean, like since that. <laughs> oh, okay. Have you have you shit your pants as an adult? As an adult, no. In preschool, I did, not preschool, first or second grade, I did. Okay. Um, do sharts count? I don't think sharts count. What noise My would you wife... make for a shart? Yeah, I don't know how much the volume to count it a full, like, shit of the pants. Yeah, so, Peter, I don't think any of that was usable. Just sure transition wasn't. right to here, welcoming everyone. Thank you so much for joining us on We Love to Watch. If you've never heard us before, we are a movie podcast. <laughs> movie podcast, movie packet. We're a hot pocket of movies, and we pick a theme each month, and then we do a few movies around that theme. And this month, it's a it's a kickoff month. It's a kickoff to a month we haven't really done before. We're really excited about it, and that is uh, it's February. It's the month of love, and we're doing uh, America's very specific. Sweethearts Month. And we're doing the films of Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, the three movies they starred in together. And then we're also, at the end of the month, going to take a look at a movie from the same era in the same type of genre, romantic comedy, where they start opposite other people. And uh, let's see if it worked as well. And we're leaving off... So they, they, they did do two movies that I think... E- each one did one that I think indisputably are well-regarded or were very popular at the time. Those were the movies without the other one that worked. That would be Splash for Tom Hanks, which I've never seen. Uh, Don't know if it holds up. Huge movie in 1980-whatever. And then When Harry Met Sally for Meg Ryan. So we'll we'll save those. We're going to set those aside. Those are the exceptions that prove the rule. rule. But Meg Ryan especially was in a lot of romantic comedies. Uh, Tom Tom Hanks, quite a few too, are those types of like quasi romantic comedies, uh, and we're gonna we're gonna check out the other ones. I don't count Big in this. Big doesn't feel like the same type of romantic comedy uh, as as like 
a When Harry Met Sally or a You've Got uh, Mail viewing situation. Viewing big as a romantic comedy is uh, pretty, fun. pretty creepy. Yeah. yeah, it's definitely a comedy. It's a big Tom Hanks movie. Does not feel quite the same genre as these other ones. So It's a comedy what, where we're all trying to forget that there was a romance in it. <laughs> yeah, which did not, did not like, I don't know, when I saw it when I was like 12, I'm like, oh, cool. Cool. Now it's, oh, not cool. Yeah. No bueno. Uh, anyway, so yeah, so that's what we're doing. It was kind of a, a shock to me. I didn't know. So I actually thought that this was Peter's idea for a month. Peter has since informed me that it was my idea. Which is one of the things that happens when you get old. You forget whose ideas your movie podcast theme months are. Uh, But Peter does tell me a lot of things. So, uh, let's see. You told me uh, I was dead and I was actually haunting this podcast for two years. Mm -hmm. Great joke. Walked through. Tried to walk through a lot of walls. Got so mad that I'd put. I'd I'd literally hire contractors, which I assumed were ghost contractors, to put holes through the wall. Just so I could feel like I was a proper ghost. I had a lot of uh, insecurities uh, about my ghost abilities. And then Peter's like, Aaron, that was a joke. Mm, and y- so, you know, you tell me a lot a of things joke, that are true. Hey, if you think contractors take a long time in uh, in the real world, imagine trying to get them to do some work when they're ghosts. No, they did, they did really good work. I don't know why you'd be insulting contractors. Um, they did charge me an arm and a leg, literally. That's the other reason I assume they were ghost contractors. That's a quote. That's many pounds of flesh. I was going to say it's a pound of flesh, but I think it's many. Pounds well, you know, when you're a ghost, who yeah. needs them, Peter? That was my thought process. Anyways, great goof. Uh, but you've also told me this was my idea, um, which I think may be right. But it, it must have been my idea because you had seen of all the movies we're doing. Oh, so we're doing the Money Pit and um, IQ for the uh, Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan movies without uh, Hanks and Ryan. Uh, you have only seen You've Got Mail? Yeah, of all these, I've only seen You've Got Mail. I think I, uh, I think it's because of the You've Got Mail era of romantic comedies that I had such a prejudice against them. Uh, and not because of You've Got Mail specifically, but because that era took a lot of the drama and a lot of the stakes and a lot of the power out of rom-coms that, that those mid nineties, uh, rom-coms. And after that, I was like, these movies are a waste of time. And then I got older, got a little more mature. I could understand the context behind them and the fact You're like, that like, Oh, kissing's not gross. I can watch these movies now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and so, like, even the light flippy ones, I think, are, are fun now. But uh, at the time, I remember being like, like, it literally was like drinking skim milk for me. I was like, why? Nothing is happening in this movie, and it's not going to end with any cool sex scenes. Why are they? <laughs> PG-13, that, that means there's no swears, no murders, no one gets fucked. Yeah, that's... Peter, that's, Peter Moran, out! Yeah, that would be a hardcore out for me. Uh, and then I became a softer adult who just likes nice things with nice people and then i I worked backwards and and discovered uh other rom-coms what's interesting is that i i actually never really had a problem with rom-coms um i actually really i i saw them the same way i viewed action movies like these are not typically my favorite movies um but I, or I guess even horror movies, because I didn't really become a I've, – I've recounted on this podcast how, like, horror over-the-top comedies like Evil Dead 2 and Dead Alive led me to becoming a, a big horror fan, like, later in high school and early college. But I just saw 
my favorite genres were like uh, you know, comedy drama so broad, but there was obviously a lot of good movies that would be qualified as drama. Uh, science fiction stuff was just huge, like Brazil type, dystopian, Monty Python, all that kind of stuff. Uh, Clockwork Orange, I loved all that stuff. Um, and like, I I liked all the other genres, and it was like I, if I was in a mood for something that was just kind of light, uh, and charming and it had two charismatic people or three or four or something like that finding like love that was that was appealing to me it was it was the same thing for oh i want to see people shoot each other and some cool stunts i'll I'll watch action movies and uh, i want to see some gross gore effects i'll watch horror movies and a couple times they would rise to the level that i really liked them but i i just saw them as like a pleasant diversion um that Usually didn't have some of my favorites, but but the Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan ones were exceptions when Harry Met Sally, an exception, uh, where I really kind of fell in love with those movies. And I, this is going to sound really dumb, but part of – I think one of the reasons is that I was uh, collecting VHS movies at that time. I worked at a video rental store. They had a – like they would sell their, you know, movies for like 2 $3 or whatever. So in, in my room in high school, I had shelves and shelves of VHSs and – uh, I think part of my desire to almost create my own movie store in my room was like, well, I need movies from all different genres. Uh, and then I would watch the movies that I bought. So I ended up, you know, ha- I wanted an expanded collection of romantic comedies and I would watch them and enjoy them. I think that is something that we have in common and it's something that like most – I think most film people have in common is you, they want like a diverse diet of movies. Yeah. And that – I think that that helps keep the – so to speak, that helps keep the romance alive with movies to have movies serve different purposes, different moods, different attitudes. And the, (laughs) and when I got older and I realized that like a lot of my favorite filmmakers, uh, had like, yes, they loved, they loved a a Godard movie or they loved like a a Russian miserablest movie. And like, then somewhere on the list, there was always like, a goofy ass Peter Sellers comedy. And uh, that was really, I think that was actually really inspiring to me as a kid. Cause I was like, yeah, just cause I'm like taking film more seriously. doesn't mean I have to give up the silly stuff or the fun stuff because it's all part of this diverse palette of what the human experience is. So like rom-coms have their place because of that. Like, yeah. And, and they're not all light and flippy floppy and, and no. just about like two cute people doing nice stuff and kissing and doing nice. It, like but, many of them, as we'll see this month have like heavier themes and are approaching yeah, life. Sleepless in Seattle is, is like not really a romantic comedy. Uh, it's definitely a romantic drama. And this, I, I think You've Got Mail is definitely their most traditional, like, this is a 90s romantic uh, comedy. Like, Dave uh, Chappelle is in it just as, like, the, the friend. The, the buddy. Yeah. Like, he doesn't. It's that, it's he that a little color, but literally and metaphorically. <laughs> and. Yeah. He's not there to he's not there to add some sort of like added cultural context to no. romance or like he's not there to add pretty much anything except for like a, a, a person for Tom Hanks to bounce ideas off of. Yeah, but and, and the other thing, too, is that there is something to this day I find comforting in a predictable movie structure. We talk about this show sometimes about like that idea of. 
look, I had a long day at work. I don't want to watch Roma tonight. Like, I know I need to see it. I love the director. Everyone loves it. But you just, especially as you get older and your free time gets less and less uh, free, uh, you don't always are like, man, I just want to kick back and watch a black and white movie that I need to read subtitles for. Like, that takes a level of focus that I don't always have by the time I get around to watching movies. So I watch less of those movies, and I end up watching things like, oh, I'm going to watch both of these Jack Reacher movies. Not movies that I would traditionally go and say, I need to watch that, but it's going to be like a Tom Cruise movie. It's going to have some good one-liners. It's, it might have some interesting stuff. I can invest the appropriate amount of attention in this and have an okay time. And that's that's a that is a fine way to experience a movie. And and also let's let's pause there quickly. Uh, Jack Reacher two is bad, but Jack Reacher oh, Jack one, Reacher, yeah, Jack Reacher two is terrible. Jack Reacher one is incredible, and it's a basically it's a super formulaic movie. The, yeah, they take they take all Done the beats really that you well. expect, and because like as people know, art is a language. There's different forms of languages. They change based on cultural context and who they're speaking to. Like just because a Tyler Perry comedy and a Gary Marshall comedy are both made in America doesn't mean they're speaking to the same audience. Um, and the uh, but Jack Reacher, they're speaking to a specific audience, but they're like, yes, we're going to subvert your expectations and do parts of this, these movies that tend to get ignored. We're going to do them extremely well and uh, and take it seriously and make you remember why why you watch movies under this format. So like th- there's a there is a power to watching something where you're like, I know where this is going. Yeah, and I just want to see good actors do good things. Directors do tell a good story like that is – and I'm not trying to, like, reduce romantic comedies to that, but there was definitely a time in the 90s – I think you can see why I kind of lumped romantic comedies, horror movies, and action movies into the same bucket. Because, like, there was a million versions of – like, when once you get to the 90s, you don't have diehard ripoffs anymore. You have, like, diehard ripoff ripoffs almost. <laughs> they took the, the movies they, – they're ripping off the movies that took the wrong lessons from diehard. Exactly. So, like – you can watch a cliffhanger or an under siege or countless other of these, all these like big muscly action stars. And, you know, every once in a while you run across some amazing movie in the in that bunch. But other times you're just like, yeah, that's fun. I watched Assassins. It's a bad movie, but I got to see Stallone and Antonio Banderas shooting stuff up. And that was that was it. Like competently directed. Uh and, like, horror movies of the 90s were so many sequels, and then they kicked into their self-referential gear, and then that was, like, its own subgenre. Like, you you would watch the uh, Urban Legend, and I know what you did last summer, and it was just, like, fun to watch all these. And besides the original, uh, or the first two screams, they just kind of followed this, like, witty killer uh, mild twists. And that's an enjoyable time. And romantic comedies of the 90s were amazingly formulaic, too. Like... You've got mail. I don't even know if it was a template or like at that point so influenced by the template that it's like it hits all of those points while still being like an amazingly rewatchable, enjoyable movie. And that is a that is a like an enjoyable movie that you can watch anytime is by any definition like a very good movie because most movies I have trouble um, have trouble hitting that standard. So. Uh, 
I think of the of now I haven't seen uh the money pit. But I'm I'm interested in it because it's like a remake of Mr. Blanding's Builds His Dream House or like a quasi one. And then Sleepless in Seattle is like a quasi remake of an affair to remember. So I think that's somewhat interesting. Um and also like I like watching Tom Hanks in comedy mode. We're going to yeah. talk about that. Like, he's so good in this movie, Joe versus... Uh, oh, yeah. Did we say we're doing Joe versus... I guess it probably made sense. We're doing Joe versus the Volcano. Which was he's, the first Meg Ryan Tom Hanks movie. Yeah, and he, he's so good in this, like, wacky comedy movie that essentially, uh, after this movie, he stops making. It, yeah. So, yeah, I'll watch the money pit with him freaking out about, like, whatever's going on in that big money pit. Oh, pipes are wrong. Like, good. I want to see Freak Out Tom Hanks. That could end up being a secret success in the same way. Do you remember when we talked about Leviathan? And we're like, I don't know if I would have loved this in 1988. But now, amazingly practical effects, like sci-fi action underwater movie with Peter Weller. It's like, this is amazing. It's like finding a, a coin that's been out of print forever. Yeah, exactly. Within the within its uh, context of 1980x, uh, doesn't work. But in a modern context, uh, actually, it has some some surprising uh, strengths. But yeah, I think, and I, I can see that with point. Tom Hanks, right? Too like we're like, holy cow, a physical goofy Tom Hanks performance. Yeah. I'm so excited I get to see this. You never see those anymore. So I think what yeah, I think we're we're really what we're really hitting at is why we're doing a romantic comedy month, and it's obviously for February, which is the Valentine's Day month, the month of love. It is, but we we are trying to talk about what are the tropes of this genre because we do do a lot of genre movies, but we don't typically do genre movies that are pointing towards mainstream audiences and particularly women. And I think it'd be very fascinating to talk about how these movies speak to women, older couples, and you know the messages that they send to younger people as well about like what love is, what romance is. And I think that'll be the comparison points that we make over the course of the month, mostly or like. What the fuck are these movies saying and why have they decided to say this and why do they all keep saying similar stuff? Yeah, and it's funny that we're starting with Joe versus the Volcano because Joe versus the Volcano completely betrays that. Like Joe versus the Volcano is not a typical romantic comedy in any context. No, and I think we're uniquely qualified to talk about how these these movies speak to women. So I'm glad that's the context we're approaching it from. Um, <laughs> it's a joke. Um, uh, what these movies say about love and what they say about like how relationships, that's the joke about romantic comedies of this era, right? Uh, it's the Onion article, like man arrested for uh, romantic comedy behavior, uh, which was very funny because, yeah, there is a lot of romantic comedy leads, mostly male, that are do some – you know, a lot of those a lot of those movies were based on like deception and lying and then someone making a huge mistake that is that in real life would probably be as close to unforgivable and then they have to come together. Uh, that's kind of what happens in You've Got Mail, although it's like a lighter mistake, but it still is catfishing to a and manipulation in a way that like I didn't realize when I it, saw like, it. It like starts an innocent mistake mistake and then it moves into fraudulent yeah. category, right? Yeah. And and you know, I, I get that it is supposed to be – in a lot of ways, these movies are fantasies of their own right. and um, But I do think that there is a lasting effect for good and bad that romantic comedies have had on the way that we view relationships. 
uh, especially the 90s era ones. Peter, you and I recently joked on the show, like, I forget who we were talking to um, about all the stupid big romantic gestures or gestures we picked up from movies uh, and probably yeah, the, the Lloyd Dobler do. effect. <laughs> yeah. Or like the Ted Mosby effect where yes. uh, like literally wholesale probably stole stuff uh, from movies and television shows that we thought whoever we were dating or trying to date would know of. Um, and it's because that that is the sense when you are anytime you boil like a human relationship down to an hour and a half or two hour movie. You're cutting a lot of corners, but you still need the audience to feel the same connection. Uh, so it's why people go through their life expecting like true love at first sight and like relationships should just be easy except the, some big obstacle. But basically, you just love each other and you one of you knows it right away or both of you know it right away. And, um, you know, that. These a lot of these times, these are PG and PG-13 movies, so kids are are watching them before they've really been in that situation. So uh, I don't, I don't like a lot of things. I don't think it's the movie's fault or that the movie should be blamed or burned, but I think it would be lying to act like they didn't have a pretty demonstrable effect on our society. Men and women, right? It's yeah. that, it's that women's and women's and men's expectations. But yeah, so do you want to uh, do you want to get into what Joe yeah, versus the volcano yeah. is? Well, and that's what's so funny. Before we do that, though, it is funny that I don't think any of these three movies really hit that romantic comedy of as like these big guest just. Well, I don't know why did I play gestures recently? The charades based board game because uh, I keep saying gestures, uh, but I I don't think any of those like Joe versus the volcano, which we're about to talk about, is this kind of weird. Um, I think I think Joe versus the volcano does a little bit of it, and I'll, I'll get to that. Okay, uh, Sleepless in Seattle is more of a drama, from what I remember. It's been a while since I've seen it, and you've got mail is like two people that are snippy with each other and don't care for each other, eventually realizing they have a lot in common, but it's not baked in this like, like they both kind of start falling for each other at the same time, uh, and then. And then eventually, like, they end up together and become friends and stuff like that. So, the, this idea of, like, the, the big two people on different pages, big romantic moments to win affection, um, or even really a big fight that needs to be resolved, doesn't really happen, I think, in, in these movies for the most part. But uh, that may also be why they're some of the finest representations of 90s romantic comedies with two of our best movie stars, Peter. Now, are you ready to talk about Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat? No, no, not at oh. all. <laughs> Rodgers and Hammerstein musical? No, no, I don't no? think I'm ready to talk about that. Can we talk about Joe versus the Volcano instead? Yeah, let's do that. I've got the moon in my eyes. She got a quick reaction to lies. She can't release a shot tagline is I'm sorry to all the hopeful fans out there but he doesn't punch the volcano that's my greatest disappointment is how little of this movie is fighting the volcano it's kind of a one and done matter well he doesn't I mean if anything 
he taps out immediately. It's and one the volcano, volcano also. That's what I call yeah. this volcano. Well, the, who wins? I think the volcano loses, though. No, the volcano wins and then just gets ornery as heck until he just implodes. Well, he doesn't implode. He sinks. I think that those are not mutually exclusive. No, that's what we're doing on this episode right now. <laughs> What's the um, recap? What happens in this movie? It's going to be the longest recap ever. So, uh, it's about Joe. Hates his job. Uh, he hates his life. He feels like shit. He gets shit at work. And he's in love with the secretary. Well, I don't know. He has, like, an interest in the secretary. Whatever. Yeah. He, he, uh, she's really not that important in the movie. Anyway, so, well, he goes to the doctor to get his sickness checked out. The doctor says he has a brain cloud. And the brain cloud means he has like six months to live and he'll be totally healthy. But he's going to feel fine right up until he dies. Yeah. And that basically he's everything that's making him feel sick right now is hypochondria. And uh, Joe basically gets a lease on life where he's like, I'm going to go quit my job. I'm going to go do something crazy because I have six months to live. I hate I hate this place. So he uh, quits his job in big fashion, tells Dan Hadaya to fuck himself. Um, and he asks Meg Ryan one on a date. Uh, it ends poorly when he tells her that he has terminal brain cloud. Just, just for just for context, there's Meg Ryan plays three roles in this movie. Yeah, I was gonna get to that. Yeah, she plays okay. three roles. Well, you said I don't, Meg Ryan one. Uh, Meg Ryan one. Yeah, that's. I don't see how that can be confusing. So that's Meg Ryan one. So she promptly leaves the movie because she understandably freaks out and leaves. Then yeah. immediately comes in uh, a rich billionaire who has there's some resources on an island he wants but he can only get them if he finds someone to be a willing sacrifice to this volcano and he sees that sacrifice in joe so he says to joe uh i i'm gonna whine and dine you i'm gonna you're gonna live like a fucking king for the next few weeks or whatever and then you're gonna jump in the volcano and that's the trade-off and you can go out like a man joe says sure whatever He's, he's kind of like uh, whatever, I guess I got nothing else to do because he quit his job. And he uh, goes on this lavish trip. He buys all this cra- crazy clothes, crazy uh, luggage, which becomes plot important. Uh, goes on a uh, goes to L.A. from New York to L.A. He meets uh, Meg Ryan number two. His name is Angelica, the rich daughter of the rich billionaire. And he has like a little a di- not even a romance, but like a sort of no, interaction with her. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, where he sort of inspires her with this new lease on life. But she also says like, fuck you. You got nothing to lose. Like, don't speak to me like that. Yeah. And then she sort of, she falls a little bit for him, but like this does this one also does not connect. Um, and then uh, he gets passed off to Meg Ryan number three, Patricia. This one sticks. Uh, and she takes him on a uh, sailboat to the island where he will jump in. And uh, they fall in love with each other on this journey. The boat sinks after getting hit by a lightning bolt. And uh, they are sort of uh, cast uh, on the sea, uh, floating on his uh, his fancy-ass special luggage. And he eventually they get rescued on the island and he gets there they throw him a party yada yada and through all this sort of adventuring with patricia he did fall in love with her and she fell in love with him but he's like i got shit to do i gotta jump in the volcano he she proposes he says yes after some hemming and hawing and then they they realize they are well, he's literally about to jump into the volcano yeah. she goes well let's get married then as long as you're killing yourself yeah, and then they jump uh, together into the volcano. 
and it backfires. The volcano spits them out into the ocean. The island sinks into the sea, presumably killing all of the residents there. And they uh, find the luggage a second time. They get on the luggage and they like profess their like their love for each other with no no fear and they there's they're not really sure what's going to happen next cuz they're not near anything that can rescue them but you know that they have each other and because of the magical realism of this movie you presume they will be okay actually I mean, it's, not, no, it's not really magical realism die. it's just sort of fantastical yeah i think real- it's a little magical there's there's enough magical realism moments it's not it doesn't lean too heavily on it but it it is definitely whimsical. It is like it's a it's a it's a, a urban fantasy. Like if you told me Michelle Gondry had a time machine and made this movie, I would believe you. Yeah, it's a little bit. It's 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 definitely whimsical, and it's definitely taking place in a context where some stuff is so ridiculous that. It, it, it's definitely towing a doing a tightrope walk. It's definitely doing yeah. a tightrope walk where it's it's uh, both a movie that takes place in a real world very similar to ours. However, uh, magic crazy stuff happening is just kind of part of the deal. Well, and it's it's walking a very tough line successfully, I would say, between uh, absurdity and sincerity. Yes. So um, yes, and 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 it's sort of t- t- saying that there's truth in the absurdity and there's truth in the sincerity. So it's not just the silliness is not not there just to uh, relieve you of of the, the the themes of the movie. The silliness is there to highlight them and saying that we live in an absurd world that makes absurd asks of us at yep. every corner. We might be being manipulated by higher forces, particularly rich people or um, very almost exclusively rich people. And the people that aren't rich are also being manipulated by rich people. Yes. Uh, the whole world seems to be pulled on these strings. And the original ending of the movie, and the, which test audiences hated, uh, spoiler alert, uh, test audiences, uh, real audiences hated this movie also. Um, it did not very well and it was reviewed kind of middling. Um, yeah. Like Roger Ebert gave it a great review, but like Vincent Canby didn't like it, it had a very mixed reception. Um, so so mention uh, the test screen, the the audience, and then um, I'll share my quick history with it. Wait, sorry, real excited. quick. Let me do the let me do the real ending, the quick ending, real quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the and that ending was that um, they. Uh, they have like a confrontation with the, uh, the rich billionaire and they like because Joe is now so brave he like kicks them off the boat and then they save some of the islanders and then they set sail together like it was a bit more of a rousing heroes ending and audiences didn't like that so they shot a much much simpler ending that doesn't even address the fact i mean it, it does address the fact that the brain cloud is fake uh yeah. and addresses and it addresses the fact that um yes her asshole father manipulated him and and that this doctor was a quack and and all of that however um, there was more of a, a, a traditional revenge arc in the original ending. And this one is like, just sort of like, eh, we got, we got dicked around by the world, but at least we got each other and we know that we have our health and we got through this with a new lease on life and, um, we have each other, which is all you really need. Yeah. And I'm, I, I like the ending that they reshot much better. 
Um, I think it works better. Um, and I think it matches moments in the rest of the film. This is not a movie about changing the status quo, even if it acknowledges that the status quo is uh, bullshit. It's about finding the moments or the parts of your life that you care about and leaning into those as much as possible so you don't get consumed by all the shit that's is out of your control and you just kind of have to deal with living in the in a world where there's a bunch of powerful assholes making a lot of decisions outside of your purview uh so I yeah I didn't see this uh, in high school when I was watching all these romantic comedies for the first time. For some reason, I think because of the reviews and everything, it just it and it didn't feel like it would follow that kind of standard formula I was looking for. Um, I kind of imagined a weirdly enough, like the same reason I never sought out the Money Pit. It was it was actually the type of movie that I was not interested in. Which are like these shrugs of like high concept comedies. Like the Money Pit at the time, it was like, oh, they have a house that's broken. That's the whole movie. Like Steve Martin's house sitter. Like, oh, she just moves into the house and won't leave. Uh, it And then this, this, I thought, was about Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks going on a crazy vacation to an island where there's a volcano. Like, that's what the poster looks like. I think I read the back of the box. It was just like, oh. They're going to get on wacky PG or PG-13 misadventures. Basically overboard. Oh, yeah. It's not quite. I mean, before overboard, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Well, I, no, this came after overboard. Oh, did it? Oh, okay. But I've never seen overboard either. Because, again, like that's whatever that specific thing I'm describing is like a sub-sub genre that has never appealed to me. It just – it was like – it was we have one joke. The joke is – uh, the lady won't leave and house sitter. The joke is the house sucks. The joke is they're on a crazy island with a volcano uh, and just didn't appeal to me. So when I finally met some people, I think, in college that were really big fans of this movie, I gave it a, I gave it a whirl and it became my favorite of the three. It was nothing like I was expecting. And it just hit me in all the right places. And also, it won a lot of points like a lot of movies do when you have this, like, preconception of what a movie is, and then it completely surprises you. Uh, and this this movie is nothing if not surprising. I, I'm excited to hear what you thought of it, Peter, having not seen it before. And and uh, but, I, but I am also curious if you were, like, was this what you were expecting? Because this just feels so different. And I'm not surprised that audiences at the time were like... What the fuck is this? Meg Ryan's playing three different parts. Um, it has all these weird, like, Brazil elements or 1984 yeah. elements at the beginning. And then at the end, like, people just die. Like, it, it, it seems like a, a just a bunch of dumb moments. And I should mention my, my uh, wife watched half of this. Uh, she came in late. And she walked away. Again, she didn't see the setup or anything, but she's like, this is so stupid. Why should I wish we were watching one of the other two f- <laughs> movies that they started together? Which I assured her, don't worry. Uh, next week. Uh, yeah. But I could see, like, if you have expectations of this as a 
uh, 90s or 80s romantic comedy and you watch this and you're just not on its wavelength or you miss the first half of the movie, you're like, this is stupid. And I'm not surprised that that was the reaction and also not surprised that people like myself and a lot of other people, I'm sure, discovered it later as this totally unexpected and unique uh, movie that just in some ways feels like it's a miracle that it exists. It would be impossible for me without spoiling it or having bit read reviews of it to know what to expect with this because it's not like anything before as you said as roger ebert said it, it's it, i can't place this plot this movie on top of anything else there's yeah. a little there's a little odyssey in there there's some romeo and juliet like there's like there's swashes of uh, rom-coms but it's a movie mostly about a guy trying to find some sort of purpose in his life and then it goes about it in the least direct way possible there's no yeah there's there's like there's like no moment where he finally has a breakthrough at the end uh where he, he all of a sudden he understands himself he just finds his where he thinks his place in the world is which is like all you can ask right well uh, and i think i think it, it uh, takes not- place in a chaotic and 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 uh scary universe and Joe has found his place in that chaotic, threatening, scary yeah. universe. And I was just going to say, it's. I think it's even less, uh, less monumental than finding purpose. Like, he's just finding something, anything to care about, uh, which is not surprising why when he meets the Meg Ryan number three, why he falls for her, because she is someone who cares very strongly about things like and he that's what in you know in a classic i guess uh guy finds the 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 personality trait he's lacking and decides that's love but that's a whole different that's that's a whole different conversation um you know it's not shocking that this person who's like i want a yacht i don't want to be subservient to my dad i want to travel around the world i'm not going to just call you by your name cuz that's what you said your name is um it's like i have i know exactly what i want and what brings me joy that he would be attracted to that? Yeah, and that she is a she is someone who wildly bucks at that system that yeah. has so thoroughly punished him in ways that he doesn't even realize yet. Yeah, and the fact that he can pull her as the daughter of the billionaire Granamore, um, who uh, uh, exploited him to try and get him to commit suicide so that he could uh, exploit uh, islanders as well. Rich people just exploiting the hell out of them. So what I'll say is this. I'm kind of glad that we're starting here because this is a movie that thoroughly subverted and confused audiences. This is – it's no mistake. I totally understand why audiences would hate this movie and that's because as you said and as the trailers say and as was, you know, sort of uh, promised to me with the, the, the commercials I'd see on TV, I was promised a Meg Ryan comedy and uh, with Meg Ryan Tom Hanks comedy and this was obviously before that was a thing but, you know, commercials were cut to be like, hey, Tom Hanks and this pretty lady. Anyways, um that sort of rom-com that we were promised, it couldn't deliver. And that's not the movie's fault. That is a, a problem with audiences expecting formulas and marketers 
fail a marketer setting up a series of rubrics a template a a way to sell movies to people and move and audiences are very rarely happy when movies subvert their expectations in this kind of way like if you tell somebody that it's one kind of movie but instead it's like this whole different weird thing audiences rarely accept that yeah, especially when it's unclassifiable. It's not like, oh, you think it's going to be a romantic comedy, but it's actually a high seas adventure. It's like, you think it's going to be a romantic comedy, and it's a unique thing you haven't seen before. Like, I can guarantee you millions of people or hundreds of thousands, I don't know how badly it bombed, uh, the, everyone that came out of this movie it, to some degree said, oh, I wish it was funnier, or I wish it was more dramatic, or yeah. I wish it was more fantastical and crazy, or like... Or they, less stupid. They're like, I just wish that it fit into my understanding of what the movie should be. And no, it's a, it's a truly unique object that just happened to introduce us to... America's Very Specific Sweethearts, yeah. So what what, what did you what did you make of this from a, like, did you love it? Did you like it? Were you just... When I was a kid, I, when I, was a kid I, I caught pieces of this on TV and it thoroughly confused me and I thought it was stupid and I was just like, why the fuck would I watch this? But it was one of those things. It was like a, a, probably in a cheap package for Comedy Central, right? Yeah. And then I watched it for this. That was the next time I watched it. Um, so I guess I could say I'm seeing it for the first time, really. Yeah. Um, but I really quite enjoyed it. I don't think I'm as big of a fan of it as you are, but I really quite enjoyed it. Its uniqueness and it, its charm is undeniable. I found myself emotionally involved as it went along in ways that I rarely get out of rom-coms in general. And that's because it's not a rom-com. It's an adventure movie that happens to have romantic themes, which is also true of like Indiana Jones and lots of other movies. But it just doesn't have like that many like big bravura action sequences like you expect from these movies. Instead, it has like a sense of silliness and a sense of uh, absurdity that feels more akin with like Python light or, you know, uh, alt comedy of today, like, or David or Mel is in or something. Yeah, it doesn't, it, it doesn't feel, it's not an outright Peter Sellers thing where it's super, no. super silly, but it's also not um, a serious exploration of, of life in the way some adventure movies are, like African Queen. It's a, it, it's its own beast. And for that, I have like a lot of respect for it. And I'm really glad we saw it for the show. So let's start at the very beginning. A very good. How did you like when it starts with this kind of like Brazil cog in the machine opening, knowing how much you like Brazil? I mean, we just talked about it last week. Like, were you were you really excited at that point? I, I can see that part being like, oh, wait, what is this? <laughs> I uh, I really love the beginning. And I think that what's great about the beginning is that it sets up. All of the themes in the movie, Joe immediately steps out of the car into a puddle that we can see, but he can't see. Joe essentially goes, walks up to his work, and it is a prison camp from 1984. It is super Orwellian-Gilliam-esque. Like, it's a, there's a, an absurdity to its brutalism that it goes it goes beyond what any office would do. Like it goes beyond practicality into the realm of um, yeah absurdity. Yeah, you know how when we when we did Return to Oz, we I made a joke about like Tim Burton probably saw that and like went oh god yes and masturbated like eight times and wrote his poem. 
uh, about Nightmare Before Christmas. When he, uh, I think that Mike Judge saw this movie and was like, oh, oh, yes, I like what they're doing because it feels like uh, now I know Office Space was a, was a short on Saturday Night Live uh, first, but this feels like a less Office Space feels like a less fantastical version of the first 10 minutes of this movie stretched to feature length. And that's because Office Space knew that leaning into the dull mediocrity of what offices are is actually more depressing. And how satisfying it is to tell off your boss is like a moment of triumph. Yes, yes. So uh, it's a great place to start. It also establishes the theme of lightning dash crooked path. So like on the way to the on the way to the prison uh on the way to work might as well be right rather be fishing there's a there's a whole long shot of this weird crooked path that they have to walk to get into work that uh is so impractical and crazy and like it makes sense for a garden but it's literally just like a concrete path surrounded by dirt uh, or a dirt path surrounded by concrete. I forget. It's it's all gray and muted. And that is the movie in a nutshell. It's the movie is about life has asked Joe to walk this crooked path and this lightning bolt comes in and just shakes him up and gets him gets him going. And it doesn't matter that that like lightning bolt was maybe random. Like I think anybody that went into that office would have been told they have a brain cloud and would have been manipulated into jumping into that volcano, right? Um, it doesn't matter that it's it's cruel. The lightning bolts are often they disrupt all of your plans and destroy your life. Uh, it doesn't matter that it's um, it, if if it, if it is natural or not, right? Like you can run out you can run out with a lightning rod and get hit by lightning a little bit faster, but like the the forces of nature in this case are these big business billionaires and the systems that keep us down, and the fact that like the rich people keep getting richer and richer. Like this movie comes from a very I, I think like a a working man's background, which is also refreshing in the '80s, which was so much about like rich people who are living their dream in the suburbs and then they take their car into work in the city and yada yada. So, so so the beginning of the movie establishes I think the themes of the movie and the tone of it which is like yeah absurd is and like impractical absurd, but, but not but, quite not quite python. Yeah, and and still an element of realism which is just, and it has all those moments of like he can't have the lamp on his desk. He's not authorized to use the copy machine. They have a whole different person from that. These are the very office space moments. There's like tubes that have signs that say don't push that that the boss takes very seriously even though he doesn't know why, but again, that was handed down from the CEOs and the board and so we don't ask questions. And then of course the whole thing where he wants to go to the doctors and they're like what are you talking about? Like, you can't, you did, you need to give me weeks notice. And he's like, how can I give you weeks notice for like being sick and needing to go to the doctor? And Dan Day has that great little monologue of like, oh, you don't feel good. I don't feel good. No one feels good. <laughs> like you, what your children feel good. We feel terrible and we're adults and that's what we do. We feel bad and we do our job. And yeah, uh, I don't think you're being flexible. Yeah, and that's that's a, a good, great line because like he is literally bending over backwards to make this yeah. asshole happy. 
Yeah, that's great. Like, that's work gaslighting. Like, I don't think you're being flexible. It's like, you're not being flexible. I want to go to the doctors and you're telling me no. Yeah. Um, and so he's dangling a job in front of him. He's like, I really wanted you to be my assistant manager. And then he launches into a minutes long tirade about how how much of a fuck up he is and how any, any, I can replace you and yada, yada. And the fact that Dan Hedaya, yes, he gets rid of the small comforts of conformity, the only splash of color in that whole office. Like, even Meg Ryan's hair is brown. Yeah. Uh, her, uh, I don't, does she have brown or blue eyes? I think she has brown eyes. Like they, it feels like they're using contact, whatever it is. It's but just regardless, something... it's like brown hair, but with like no sheen because of that yeah. fluorescent lighting that they're using. So it's like she's, she's a beautiful person, obviously, but like they're, even that is being hidden because of this disgusting fluorescent light that's making him sick. And, uh, and Dan Hedaya asking uh, fucking Tom Hanks to take yeah, the blame. Yeah, she does. Sorry. She does have blue eyes and she in real life and she has brown eyes in that scene. Yeah, It I took me a little so. bit to realize it was Meg Ryan the first time I saw it. Like, it looks so different. Her, her, her adorableness is so specific that it shined through for me. But, like, also we're watching it in the context this month. So, I kind of just assumed. Anyways. So, um, but, yeah. So, the, he is going through uh, this hellish uh day but like yes it's a little absurd however all of these things are things that you recognize probably if you've worked a job that is not a great job if you've worked a good job a shitty job an okay job you recognize a boss giving you shit for taking vacation time that you earned taking sick time a boss dangling a job in front of you that he has no intention of giving you like uh asking you to take the blame for stuff that's not yours so like that's that's something i really attracted me to this movie and i think runs through the whole movie is that it has a a a common man a working man sense of of in uh, injustice and indignity but the way that like you're just like well i mean this is the job i have so like i guess i gotta just like eat this shit that you're handing me yeah and i i identified with this especially when i first saw this movie uh and other stuff like this like office space or uh, brazil or even that scene in uh, american beauty <laughs> Uh, the late 90s were really big into like, fuck you, corporate job, because like I was at the time I was like a film major and like a, I knew I wanted to like write and do this like artistic endeavor for my career. And this idea of like working in like some office, I was that person that was like, how does anyone even do this? Like, how do you just end up working in an office all day? Uh, I need more out of out of my life and stuff like that. So like movies like this reinforce that. And it didn't what help. What age were you when you realized that uh, most pro- successful producers, directors, writers work in offices, and that is like a dream for struggling people? <laughs> I you know it's pro- probably a little after this because like I ended up taking like a a job at a company, being like a operations manager, like when I was twenty two. So and I probably saw this when I was like nineteen. So a little more like freshman sophomore not technically an adult but still like not fully understanding like still having childish thoughts about what being an adult meant but anyways a little bit of a digression uh but like it also didn't help i've said this to my siblings before too like our parents didn't help by like my dad was like a talk show host on the radio 
I could, couldn't go anywhere in the state where people didn't know who I was based on that. Like, now North Dakota is a small state, but he had the number one show in the entire state. And especially in the 90s, a lot of farmers listening to. So I'd go, like, do speech meets and stuff and across the state, and everyone knew who my dad was. It was a very bizarre experience. Uh, and and then my mom was, like, a writer. Like, she wrote magazines and did all this stuff, and she worked from home. and And so, like... My concept of, like, what a traditional job was. And they had bizarre hours. Like, my dad worked from, like, 4 in the morning and was home at 1 p.m. And then, like, you know, my mom just worked whenever she had time. Uh, so, I, I I think that also, like, fucked up my perception of, like, oh, parents' jobs are cool. That's what you want to do. Like, I can't just go be an office person. What does that even mean? <laughs> like, not not even probably fully realizing that, like... Offices are where the work happens, but, like, there's a bunch of different things that occur in offices, as you said, including writing and producing and other movie-related stuff. Yeah, and I, and as someone, I also thought I also thought that I was not going to end up in an office because, like, that is uh, – that's where dreams go to die. And now I'm realizing yeah, I'm like – You wear a stupid tie with a <laughs> monkey suit. And now, like – uh, when I'm like looking at all my friends who like work in offices and like I work in an office and I'm just like you just see you get more of a sense of what the economy has to offer and you're like yeah. actually air conditioning's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean I probably would have thought it was cool if I found out I worked at a software company when I was in high school. Yeah, I'd you're like, like, holy oh, shit, awesome. do you guys print the AOL discs? Software company, and then be like, but just FYI, you gotta work at an office. No! <laughs> I thought we would work at like a space camp or yeah. something. I'm working in space or nothing! <laughs> Where else can you develop software but in space? The internet know. goes up to space, you throw it back, it's how you get a computer. I'll be space software, man. <laughs> you could have been the Bill Gates of your generation. I swear to God, if you so much as give me a chair in space, you're fired. <laughs> you're fired. <laughs> you ain't chair at a desk. Do all my typing by etching hieroglyphics into the space station. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I I totally understand that that impulse, and I understand that like some part of me has resigned that like this these are the asks of the work economy, and some part of me has like resigned to that. But on the other hand, I'm like I do like that I have like a place I go to work, and then I leave that place, and then my work is done. Yeah, um, and that place has air conditioning, and like people freak out if there's if the heating isn't right, and like. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, and also the things that are important to me, like being able to watch movies to afford them and like having children and a house and all the, like, you know, that takes money. And uh, like, we're all uh, just just stuck with the Lloyd Bridges of the world and we're trying to find our little spot of happiness in a in a society that unfortunately is not run by us. Yes, exactly. Um, but yeah, so, so I... I this this whole impulse leads into a incredibly fun second act, which I think is like the most accessible act in the movie for sure. The second act is essentially it's kicked off by the billionaire Grainamore, um, the billionaire coming in and being like, "Hey, here's the movie. This is the plot of the movie. Uh, you're dying, so uh, you can do this, right? You want to go be the, the the Joe that's fighting the volcano." Uh, if you, if you say no, I can find a Greg that wants to fight the volcano or a Bob or a Jill that wants to fight a volcano. Um, but he, uh, he that kicks off the second act. And the second act is entirely like wish fulfillment, rich people fantasy. Like, let's go shop at in, you know, on Fifth Avenue in New York and buy all the 
fucking best clothes and get a watch and get a cool radio and get all this crazy shit and new new luggage there's a really funny scene where like he goes in to um goes into like a luggage shop and he's telling the guy and the guy's getting so pumped like he's just like a real journey like he he doesn't he doesn't quite like He's just an absurd human being. Like who? It's great. What luggage. What luggage guy is like this romantic about luggage day to day? And I don't know if it's Sam Watterson, but it sure looks like it. There's a line where he's like, "Well, what?" He almost seems like a weird luggage luggage uh, fetishist. Oh yeah. Like he, like he is because there's a part where the luggage salesman's like, "So how are you using this luggage?" He's like, "I don't know. Could be land. Could be sea." Could be a lot of different places, and he leads in and goes, "That is very interesting for a luggage problem." Yeah, he says that's a very exciting as a luggage problem. Yeah, <laughs> like he, he that is him clicking into place. Like he, you know, assholes that's come in every week, and they're like, like very assholes. exciting for a luggage. Like even he is still like clarifying. He knows it's not. Like, that probably is the most exciting luggage problem you could have. But even he is, like, curbing his enthusiasm on it. And he, uh... And like he probably has these these hoi polloi these 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 commoner businessmen coming in every week saying I want another black Just me a brief I want case. another black briefcase nothing fancy and then occasionally he comes to the go with a brown briefcase and then suddenly this guy comes in he's like I want the exclusive model that costs the most money and like the, and that's like the that is the absurdity of the movie is that like people fit into these strange roles. Like, perhaps the most human and relatable character and clearly did not get the notes on what kind of movie this is, Ossie Davis. No, not the star of The Babadook, Aaron. Um, (laughs) Okay. uh, You called Essie Davis from uh, Babadook. uh, Ossie Davis? Well, she's from Australia, so technically I was right. She is Ossie Davis. Yeah, (laughs) Ossie Davis. Yeah. Yeah. Ossie Davis, who's great, we'll talk about Bubba Hotep or something later that he's in because like he's in been a lot of great movies but he uh he's like he didn't get the note that this is a ridiculous movie and he's kind of like a great little way to like keep you dramatically invested because he just like comes in he says a line he's just like I don't know who the fuck you are like you're t- like I spent my whole life trying to figure out who I am I'm not gonna I'm, well, I'm tr- I just but drive the car that's the part that really hits the theme well because it's this idea that Tom Hanks this character has no desires, no things he wants. And so even even being given this like remarkable amount of freedom, like you have a gold American Express credit card, you buy whatever you want. He gets in a car and is like, I don't know, I guess clothes. And and Ossie Davis is like, what kind of clothes? He's like, I don't know, maybe jungle wear. And Ossie Davis responds to, well, I'm, I can't help you. Like you're a grown man who doesn't know – what kind of clothes you want, how you want to look, the way that you present yourself to the world. Like, I can't give you all that information right now, so I can't help you find what, what store to go to. And that really reinforces this idea that, like, Tom Hanks doesn't – like, like he's not trying to find purpose. He's just trying to find anything that he cares about in the way he feels like he's supposed to. That, that, like, all of that really has, like, in a speech to Dan Hedaya, 
has really um, like sucked out the life from him. And so like the the way that people enjoy life and experience living, he doesn't he doesn't have it. And that's such a crucial part to like even after he's been freed from his um, from the confines of like having the life sucked out of him. It's not like now he knows what he wants. He still has to like find who he is as a purpose and what he wants out of life. And that that eventually gets to the best moment of this movie, uh, which we'll talk about later when the moon comes up, when he like finally kind of recognizes something in his life that has given it not again, not purpose, not meaning, but just as simply as simple as like joy, like he experienced something that he liked. Yeah, and this movie was written and directed by John Patrick Shanley, um, who did Moonstruck. So he well, he wrote Moonstruck and won an Oscar for it. Uh, yeah, the he, only other movie he directed is. Think this guy's a moon guy. Uh, I think you know. I'm gonna say he's definitely a moon guy. Yeah, no moons in doubt. I don't think. I doubt there are any moons in doubt. I haven't seen doubt. Seems like a big change from this movie's. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I remember liking Doubt. I'm sure now that's like not a cool thing to say, but I remember Doubt being good. I remember Meryl Streep being good in Doubt. Don't speak. Gwen Stefani plays the lead. Um, Meryl Streep, I think, is like I don't know, off screen somewhere. Um, maybe she plays like old Gwen Stefani. I don't know. But um, this is this is one of those facts you don't hear that often, but it is true. Every movie that's not Doubt is no doubt. That's so, so true. So this movie. While unequivocally is not the movie Doubt, could be called No Doubt. They could have renamed this movie No Doubt. They could have. And then Gwen Stefani and company sued for copyright. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she could sue every movie and make a million dollars. Easy. I really like this uh, song, Don't Speak, but the band name, Gwen vs. the Volcano, not that good. No good. Um, But yeah, so he did uh, Moonstruck, haven't seen it, and he did Doubt. I don't got much else to say here on that, but it is crazy, though, that he, like, wrote this Oscar-winning movie, and then he got this movie to make, and it's crazy, (laughs) and he got an amazing cast for it, and it bombed, and he had to kind of go back to being a playwright, and then he came back to make a nun child molestation movie that has no sense of of lively romanticism about life. It's this grim, dark movie. I'm curious, if John Patrick Shanley's okay. Well, I mean, if you dig deeper into his uh, Wikipedia entry, you'll find he's not. Might and should probably be in jail. So we can move on from him. Oh yeah, sure. But yeah, so let's start with the moon scene. The moon scene is great. Whoa, 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 whoa. Slow it whoa. down there. Whoa. Uh, oh man, Cosmo Kramer, great character. Also has some personal life. You think Cosmo Kramer likes the moon? Uh, it's Cosmo. Pretty close. Cosmos Krameros. Cosmos Krameros. That's why uh, the orphan of Cosmos Kramer. The orphan of Cosmos Krameros. That's my <laughs> that's my Steve Brule name for Cosmo Kramer. Got it. That's Cosmos Krenstra. Uh, <laughs> so what are we woeing me? Can we? We're to, I want to talk to I want to talk about the fucking moon. Why are you woke? Yeah, me? we're gonna talk about the moon and when it hits your eye like a big a pizza pie. That's a more uh, baby. That is a more. Uh, no, we didn't talk. We passed over. That's a more. 
I just did that when I pass when you pass over things. That's also a moray. Yeah, that's also a moray. No, I'm gonna call that uh, objection, Your Honor. That's a moray. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, we didn't talk about one thing. It's very important. I just need your buy-in. See if you have another candidate. More important than the moon. Got it. So Dan Hedaya is like the angriest person on the place of face of the earth, right? <laughs> yeah, and I love him so much. He's so good. But I'm trying to think of a movie. Where he's calm, and I the best I can come up with is like barely contained rage. In, yeah, Blood Simple, he's barely containing his rage long enough to hire a hitman. Like even a night at the Roxbury, like he fucking hates his kids. He just hates them so much. Right, understandably he's the dad so. At the Roxbury. Did that I'm pass t- you by? Did you watch a night at the Roxbury at some point in your life? Oh, I did. I also watched Superstar, uh, Monkey Bone, uh, what was the other Chris Kattan one? Now you're just naming Chris Kattan movies. I thought you were naming Saturday Night Live movies. I don't are, think these not Chris K- are these Superstar. not SNL movies? Well, not Monkey Bone. Okay. But yeah, like but I've late, watched a lot of bad ex-SNL movies. Man? I've watched both of the Stuart Smalley movies. Ooh, I didn't even go that far. I think there's only one. Did you also watch It's Pat? And think it was a Stuart Smalley movie? <laughs> yeah, I watched. God, <laughs> Okay, um, can we? Can you? Can you do the thing that you were gonna say with your mouth? I did. I did do the thing. Is is he the angriest person alive? Or can you? Uh, think of yeah, he's he's definitely the angriest person alive, and I love that he has so many shades to that anger. It's um, it's. Uh, I'm mad because I've got to do a lot of shit now and I'm in trouble. There's I'm mad and I'm just going to keep it in because you know I can explode. Uh, I've got I'm mad and I am an actual volcano right now erupting all over your ass. Yeah. Do you think Joe versus the volcano like was actually Dan Hedaya was the volcano thing we're referring to, not the physical volcano? And he beats him like... 20 minutes into the movie. Well, he's the only one that he threatens to punch. Like, that actually seems like it could have ended in some versus action. Where the volcano, like we talked about earlier, not much of a fight there. No. No, But he could have punched Dan Hedaya. He said, I should punch you, as a matter of fact. So, I think Joe versus the volcano is actually referring to Joe versus Dan Hedaya. The movie also unrelated features of volcano. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, he's also in a movie we have already done on the show, a little classic called Alien Resurrection. He's very angry in that movie, too. I he's think angry. He's like, he's like, when will these goddamn aliens get off my ship? <laughs> he's like, you're like, oh, it must be humid on this uh, on this ship space station. They must have their humidity filters off. But it's like just him just beating sweat in this little yellow room. The uh, only time he's chill on that movie is when he's like got a whiskey in his hand, space whiskey, and he's like, and he's like, listen, there's no, there's gonna be no aliens on this ship. And then three seconds later, alarms are going off, and he's like, there's fucking aliens. What is he like? I don't think I've ever seen an interview with him. He's not quite like uh, shows up on Conan. I hope material. he's like secretly like a transcendental meditation dude who's just like he's like i've really found a lot of peace in in in, in assessing the mistakes that's a pretty good of my that's life. a pretty good hideya i mean we've never heard calm hideya before so it's a pretty good uh space for me to do an impression within right 
Yeah, well, it's all fantastic. It's, it's just as fantastical as, as the events within this movie. Joe versus the volcano. Yeah, he was named after the Harry Belafonte song. <laughs> Daya, Daya. Yeah, this is Daya cool. Is so angry, he's knocking <laughs> bananas off the tree. <laughs> That's pretty angry. You have to be pretty fucking angry. You no, fucking yeah. It's like it's like Donkey Kong. He pounds. <laughs> On the things, and then, but he's at the tropical island, so the bananas fall. Gotcha. Pick up these goddamn bananas! <laughs> he punches them off, and then he's like, who made a goddamn mess in my fucking jungle? Six foot, seven foot, eight foot bunch! It's too many bunches! Pick up the goddamn bananas! Put the banana down! Put the bananas on the tree, I didn't blow up down my parents' tree factory, savage by you guys taking the bunches. Do you think that he did an interview for his first movie? He just, uh, he was just yelling at a producer for uh, cutting him off in traffic, and he was like, he was like, you're in. You are going to be the angry person. He's like, he's like you're really, he's like, if I don't give you this role, you will murder me. I love that at some point in the 90s there too like sure he's like a dad now <laughs> oh just, yeah like in like clue like he's awesome in clueless he's very good in clueless but I don't know who what the cast is like yeah just make him like a really angry dad <laughs> just a really just a guy who every I get it I guess because it's a little bit the idea being that Cher and her friends are so foreign that it just makes the dad so angry not understanding what's going on. And it's also helpful for, like, parents to have, like, this, this conduit to be like, I don't understand why the generation is this way. And to have one or two characters be like, everything you're doing is stupid. Except yeah. for him, he's like, why are you? That dress looks like it was made of my bananas. <laughs> Put I the bananas <laughs> on the tree. Put the goddamn bananas. Uh, do you think... Really quick, last Dan Hedaya thing. Do you think that he was there so that uh, – because kids love Clueless and then their parents would watch the movie and go, oh, I get it. It's okay to yell at my kids. And my kid loves this movie, so she's going to – or he's going to be fine with it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it was a apologia for parents who love yelling at their kids. Just fucking scream at them. You just, <laughs> have to be, you just have to be rich though. Yeah, just scream at them like they took all your bananas, and they'll still love you. Yeah, if your house is really big and your voice takes on an echo, it's okay to scream at your kids. Yeah, you can't hear it. You have to scream because the acoustics are so bad. Oh it's like that God, scene yeah. in Batman. Like, you have to yell. You got to be able to project in those big, rich houses. But not the big and rich uh, houses. Those are different. Frankly, I don't know why the architect did design a special uh, echolation technology so you could yell at your daughter from 300 feet away. A hundred percent he yells up the stairs at some point in that movie. Uh, anyway. And he's like, the moon? he's like, what did you do to my rich people stuff? Share, I need some potassium. <laughs> <laughs> why are kids so different from me, Dan Hadaya? <laughs> You could have eaten one apple. You could have eaten a pear. I bought pears. I think Dan Hedaya is so perfectly cast in that movie because uh, who you can't even imagine him as a teenager. Like that, you can't imagine him being like being like, 
You want to go down to the soda fountain? <laughs> I, I imagine he was born with those eyebrows and his parents were like, well, I hope this works out for him someday. <laughs> I remember uh, when I was looking for our daughter and they have like the baby room. They just keep the babies in and their glass tubes. Mm -hmm. There was like a kid that I swear to God, he looked like he had like one of those old Saturday Night Live baby toupee commercials. It just thick, black, wavy hair. Uh, and I'm like, I hope you named that kid Dan Hedaya. <laughs> Did the baby start yelling at you? Yeah. He's like, put my bottle down. <laughs> Do you think when Dan Hedaya said, uh, said Hedaya is Michi. Great. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to explain. That's better. I was going to say what he saw said to a woman. He probably called the director and was like, fuck you. <laughs> My career wasn't building to that. I don't know what it was doing. Um, Can we finally talk about the moon? Talk about the fucking moon. So it, there's a moon, there's a moon moment. Okay, so the, the moment in the movie is that so the, the, the yacht has been struck by lightning. Meg Ryan, number three, is like still in trauma over that. She's passed out. Uh, Tom Hanks is giving her like a tiny bit of water each day and not even giving himself any. Um, he's all – at this point, he is they, – they've been on this like raft made of suitcases. He gets completely sunburnt and gross and there's this part where they're like, it almost looks like they're about to fall over the side of the, the earth. Like, the earth is actually flat. Instead, this, like, giant moon uh, rises that fills almost the entire sky as far as they can see. Which, I'm always a sucker for that visual anyway. Like, I, I love the way that looks in, like, Bloodborne or just... It's a cool visual when the moon is that big and, like, feels that close and just that kind of, like, cosmic, uh, uh, I was about to say ballet from The Simpsons, Leonard Nimoy. But, yeah, that's right. The ca cosmic ballet goes on. It feels like, it feels like as close as we ever get to seeing a visualization of, of God or a larger power uh, to us because the scale is so massive. I guess sometimes when you go, you reach a particularly beautiful, um, like the Grand Canyon or, you know, I, I feel some of that when I go to Zion National Park. Like there's a – there is a – there are parts of the earth that can make you feel that, but the fact that it's the fucking moon and your brain is like – your brain for some reason can't believe it's real. So, there's something dreamy about it. Yeah, and he, he looks at it and I, I, I think he's – and this may be my interpretation, but he's all excited. And I think at first you're almost supposed to think that he thought it was going to be land before it turns into the moon. And he falls on his knees – and he just says, like, in the most, like, Tom Hanks, dramatic, sincere delivery, just, like, like he's on the verge of being overwhelmed by tears. He just says, thank you for my life. And I, I like, it kind of, in a lot of ways, comes out of nowhere. Like, that seems like the scene that's supposed to be at the end of the movie. There's a happy ending, and he finally realizes, like, that he has something to live for feels like a stretch because he's still going to go through with it. But like he finally sees his life as like his and a gift and like the time he had, he was able to 
finds some semblance of joy in it, and he's realizing that that is something to be thankful for. It's interesting that he's suffering at this point more physically than he has for the whole rest of the movie. Yeah. Uh, like however, this is this is some sort of uh, this is some sort of transcendental pain that he's going through. That he's like through this journey, this insane journey. I have got, I have gained perspective on what my life is, and that like just because this is a hard moment and I might die here or whatever, I've still found, I found you know the company of the company man of this woman because this was after they kissed on the boat, and he's like, I feel a sense that I can care about her, and even if we both fucking die on this ocean, like I have something to care about. And, and and I have a, a goal, I have a destination, and like that sort of like, and he's thinking it, thinking the moon as a so almost like yes, like a cosmic or a um or even like a secular god. Like he's yeah. just he's like I'm talking to you, moon, because I got no one else to talk to. But thanks. Yeah, and there's a part of that that just sort of reflects my own philosophy in a weird way, like. You know, I don't necessarily like. I'm I'm not religious. I don't believe in that sort of thing. But I do like have a sense that life is finite, and I am lucky that I got one. You know, like this this idea of even when I'm at my worst moments and like just hate everything or you know anything like that. That there is like the the cosmic accident. To, you know, we talked about the Monty Python song from A Meaning of Life last week. The like the cosmic accident that I exist is like insane. It's the kind of thing that you would think about when you were like ten or something, and then all of a sudden you like would get dizzy in this weird way, and like I need to stop thinking about this right now because it's just breaking my brain a little. And but but there's there's a you know there's a part of me that always likes to just think about like I am lucky for the time I have. And, you know, and in a way that's that's what kind of inspires me and like to to hopefully enjoy it or to be a good person or to do good things or, you know, that's that like I it's an accident of the universe that I exist. I have a small amount of time and I want to do something good with it. And there's a, him expressing that like to the moon in that moment is like like my version of religion and like and that's why in a way that this is like a this is like a religious movie for me like this is this is someone who is reflecting on the gifts he's been given at his lowest moment like at one of his lowest moments like it's a you know this is gonna sound like hyperbole and i guess it is kind of but like there's a little bit of him being like you know uh like like uh, secular Job or Jesus, like giving thanks to uh, an empty universe that that doesn't care about him at at a low moment. I I think that's a really great interpretation of it because, like, as someone who uh, is also not religious, I you have to find some sort of context within. You know, the, your place in the universe, even if that context is, I'm a worm and I exist because, uh, uh, you know, a, a chance of fate. Like, th- no matter what, there is some sense of miracle um, in your existence, even if you're um, 
completely atheist and uh to, to to even bother continuing living on needs to recognize that miracle otherwise it's just um life can be a, a grand slog yeah and it can seem rather pointless and i like that this movie neither delves into outright religion nor does it delve into um sort of like hokey spiritualist stuff because like yeah. that's just like a different type of religion for me um and it, so it, it speaks to me because as somebody who's not religious like there are so many movies about finding guidance in your life through accepting god um in whatever form that is uh and i like that this movie is about like kind of it kind of cuts out a lot of the bullshit on that journey yeah, and and that's why the fatalism of this movie doesn't bother me. Like, I could see people going, "Oh, it's kind of cruel that those very nice people on the boat died in the lightning strike, or that the at the end of the day the island sinks." Right? Like, I think there's probably a case for that being handled in a way that is like, I don't know, I don't know if this is a real criticism, but of the movie of like, but I but I see this more for like these kind of fatalistic comedies where like death was funny that sometimes in looking back like that cheapen life in a certain way. And as a result, the movies aren't as funny. I don't always find that, but I've definitely heard that argument and that's an argument I can understand. But I think in this movie, that's why it works. Like the movie is about how the universe ultimately is uncaring. Good people and bad people die in the most absurd reasons. There's nothing you can do to prevent it. There seems there's seemingly almost no moral like no moral compass of the universe, with the exception of the one little moment with the volcano, which is still just a like an accident of us existing, is an accident of when the smoke blew up at that exact moment, and that's why they get to survive. And and then you have that combined with these powerful forces that are not cosmic forces, but human forces that are literally uh, pulling strings for their own benefit against the, the goodwill of humanity. And like, that's the area that us as humans exist in. We exist in an uncaring universe where death is around the corner and can happen any moment. And there is billionaires and millionaires and capitalists that are, that are uh, using us as ants in their own schemes to gain power and wealth. And that's where we sit. So how do you – when you look at that, where do you find your joy? And I, that's what this movie is about. And that's why like that moment in the moon is so perfect and it's why like the fatalism doesn't bother me because it's it's representative of the themes that the movie is really hitting as a whole of like you need to find the thing that gives – you joy and happiness that makes you know that makes all the rest of this nonsense and terribleness like worthwhile i think that's really well put and i think that helps us kind of move on to like where joe finds that purpose and a lot of that purpose is found through his interactions with the three meg ryans in this movie uh why the fuck are there three meg ryans in this movie it's very confusing so i get why there's i get why there's at least two but i don't know why that there's three it feels very weird that they didn't just cast three different actresses or i don't know so here's what i'll say I think Meg Ryan is very good portraying three different characters. And I it's something that 
traditionally men get to do all the time in film. Uh, Jack Nicholson and Mars Attacks are all the different characters in Doctor Strange Love. Like this idea that some that in these kind of fun or fantastical comedies or stuff like that, like that, you know, com- gifted comedic actors play these multiple characters. But we're not expected and- to give genuine dramatic import to those characters in Mars Attacks all, those are all farcical characters that are basically there to get blown up and in Peter yeah. Sellers thing he's just playing a bunch of different weirdos that are outlining the same theme Meg Ryan yeah she, yeah, it's fun to see her play these different characters and they're all charming in their own way or at least the first and the third ones are, are very charming but the you're expected to have emotional attachment to all three and it's very hard to like let go of the first Meg Ryan and then move on to the next Meg Ryan. It's yeah. Yeah. So I, I do like it from the sense of like uh, they don't give actresses the chance to do this that often in film. It feels like so I like that. I like it as a showcase for Meg Ryan being yeah, fun, but like in the context of like the context of the end, the end is an outright romantic ending. And it feels silly to me that we waste time with Meg Ryan number two when we could just have. Yeah. And there's actually only like 40 minutes of Meg Ryan number three. I for, for some reason, I honestly thought that like he quits the job and ends up on the boat. Like I didn't I forgot that there's that whole second act where he's in the city. He's in L.A. Was, yeah. Yeah, that that forty minutes take place uh, with Meg Ryan number three, and the boat. I I will say I haven't quite cracked it. I feel like there's some icky subtext that I don't like as I dig deeper. Not that I should ignore it. Like I, I don't want to dig deeper because I don't. It seems a little icky. But because even the first Meg Ryan, he's like, "Haven't I seen you before? You look very familiar." And then the last Meg Ryan, like one of the last things he says to her is like, "I thought I'd seen you before." Uh, it feels like there might be something icky about, like, like, something about all, like, women being, like, I, I I don't even know if I've cracked what's icky about it, but there feels like there could be some textual, like, uh, women are interchangeable. It does hurt, I think, the impact of that third relationship and you buying it, like, hook, line, sinker, and believing in it, that it's a real thing, because I'm like... Because it also helps highlight the fact that these people just fucking met. Yeah, I would have liked more time with Meg Ryan 3. Couldn't we... They have just met an extra day or two earlier in LA instead of having the Angelico character altogether. Like, I don't think we get enough out of the Angel. I basically have two complaints in this movie, and that's that I think the Meg Ryan casting doesn't make sense to me, and two, there's way too much music in this movie. I Well, first of all, I didn't know... There's so much fucking music in this movie. That's not. A, I actually like the music. Um, I like a lot of it, but there's too much. I did not know that legally you were allowed to use the song "Good Love" in an actual movie. I thought that there was a congressional mandate that that was only allowed in trailers. So it's nice <laughs> to see it in an actual movie. In a very funny scene, that that uh, shark catching scene is a really good reminder of what I talked about uh, at the top of this, where like Tom Hanks is an amazingly gifted physical comedic actor and it is so weird like i looked at his imdb like he's done after this like sleep is in seattle and you've got mail maybe his um his like other two meg ryan movies but him being like a goofy like guy which was his whole 80s thing 
Like he's just a goofy, physical, almost like manic in his energy, especially when like in Dragnet and in Starsky and Hutch. It's like watching him be like Starsky and Hutch. Not Starsky and Hutch. What's the dog? Bosom buddies. Oh, Turner and Hooch. But yeah, like he's always like that kind of like. Or even like Bachelor Party, all these like 80s comedies he was in. He's always like, what are you doing? Like, that's his energy. And he's you so good at like freak, freak out and he's throw so good at shit around out. the house. Like, that'll be yeah. Money Pit, I imagine. Yeah. And then like he does this and like, that's it. Like, he hasn't really, he's returned to comedy, but he hasn't really returned to, and at this point he may, I get that, that the kind of physical comedy he's doing in this movie may not be. Uh, as easy to do when you're in your 50s. I guess maybe like Forrest Gump has a little bit of it. And like Cloud Atlas has some too. And Castaway, I guess there's a little bit of him like when he's on the island and freaking out. But this is also but, funny because this movie sets up Castaway really well because yeah, they realize that he's really good at like you feel bad for him in those moments, but also like you, some part of you believes that Tom Hanks will never give up and kill himself. So like, yeah, um, yeah, I think that's right. I, I'm excited. I think next week, because of the Meg Ryan, uh, the way she's playing three characters, I do think talking about their chemistry, um, makes probably makes more sense next week because there is a lot to talk about there why these two work together. But as a little taste of that, it is, I mean, Meg Ryan does play, is very good at playing three distinct characters, and Tom Hanks has energy with, like, all three of them. And I'm sure that is part of the reason why some casting director seeing this movie that was a flop and people didn't really like went, okay, but, like, there's something here because you could see him ending up with all three of these Meg Ryans. So maybe we should just do a movie with him and Meg Ryan. Yeah, you can you can see that potential because he's uh, Tom Hanks has great chemistry with the three different versions of them, and even though the second one, Angelica, is a flipperty gibbet, a term I've never heard before. Um, she is she is a parody of an LA person. Yeah. And she has an annoying kind of nasally accent. And, uh, and she's also like an artist who can't really sell art to anybody else, but her billionaire father. And she, uh, she has a great line. She says, he says something to her. That's like very serious. And she goes, Oh, I have no response to that. Like, she oh, is, yeah. she is programmed to respond within a certain social context and then it's just gone, um, which makes it even weirder that it's Meg Ryan because, like, you're not really – you're supposed to feel sorry for her that she never figures it out, but, like, you're, you're not See, really... I, I actually read that character differently. I, I don't understand why her and Patricia weren't combined or why she wasn't – why the facets of her personality weren't just more facets of Patricia. Why why Patricia couldn't have been – why well, they couldn't have the suicide conversation with Patricia. Why they couldn't have the art conversation with Patricia. Like we honestly don't know that much about Patricia, which is – I guess – adds flavor to d- different interpretations. I disagree. I think I think that you know a lot about her. Like, she's very clearly defined what she wants, what she doesn't want out of the world. Um, 
I mean, she's as clearly defined as you can get, I think, for a character who is on screen for 40 minutes and is asleep for 15 of those. I'm not saying <laughs> exactly. I think this like, is, I think that those I think she does great in the time that she's given, but I don't think she's given enough time. I agree with that. But I, I uh, the second Meg Ryan, the L.A. one, I actually take that a little bit differently. Like there's definitely some parody of like the L.A. socialite uh, who. But there's a lot of like the I don't have a response to this or when they're in the car and he's like putting his like, here's what you should do because here's what I did. And she's like, you are putting too much on me right now. Like you're projecting yourself too much on me. And I like that. I like this idea of. Just because you've had a personal revelation doesn't mean that everyone is going to have the exact same personal revelation. Like, you you may have discovered some truth for you, but um, but you shouldn't, like, put that on other people and expect them to have lived the same experiences as you. And I think, you know, that is such a we, – we talked about it on one of the, our Pods Not Dead episodes about, like, when we talked about our history with religion – that we both understood a little bit of like why that kind of like fundamentalist uh, born again Christian like type person is so annoying because they just need to share this stuff. But then we both reflected that like, well, when we started reading some stuff, we're like, maybe religion's not all that true. We did the same thing. That's why there's all these annoying atheists because it's like you find something that totally redefines your life. And assume that if you give people that same knowledge, they are going to react the same way. And I think that's I think that's what her character, besides the the parody of LA, is supposed to be. Like someone who's like, Yeah, okay, great. I'm glad this works for you. You're you know, it's you definitely seem happy. I'm psyched about that. But like everything you're saying has no like personal resonance in my life. And and I by doing the exact same thing you did, I'm not going to achieve the same level of happiness. Yeah, and I I understand that, but I don't understand why that character or those themes couldn't have been explored through Patricia or a different actress where it wouldn't highlight so much that we don't spend that much time with Patricia. Like, it still doesn't work for me that we, yeah, have, we have to keep jumping around these characters, and I think that it kind of robs... It robs Meg Ryan of reaching deeper, deeper moments, um, more, more deep moments because like, uh, the first character is, there's not much to talk about with the first Meg Ryan. I don't remember her name because essentially like, yeah, they have like a cute, like little, like, you know, we work in the same office. Like he's not her boss. She, they have parallel roles. He's yeah. like a librarian. She's a secretary for Dan Hedaya. They both report to Dan Hedaya, yada, yada. It's sort of like Pam and Jim from the office, but not in that level. But like, like it's not, Jim is not uh, asserting authority when he starts dating Pam, which is an important part of their relationship. Like she is the secretary. She is there for the office plus, uh, you know, um, Michael, whatever. So the point the point there is that like it's supposed to be this like we just occupy the same space and everybody in their life has had a crush on someone in their office just because of how much fucking time you spend together. Yeah, and they're seeing each they're she's seeing him through a different light. And then he's like I mean that I that scene is so like darkly funny because I like, love that scene. Just before you have we have sex, just let you know. I'm I'm gonna be dead in a few months. And she's like, Okay, like I thought your little stand-up to the boss thing was cute, but, like, 
I mean, there is like a good lesson there. Like, thank you for being like, that is information you should have shared with me before we had sex. Um, that is good that you did that. But also, of course, no, like, I just thought what you did was charming and brave, but this feels like a big thing and I'm not going to do it. Thank you for giving me all the information. And this is not, and I think maybe some people at the time or whatever, I think some people might read it as like, she's being cruel or something. No. She's reacting as a normal human being, which is, hey, we don't know each other. We have no commitment to each other. Hey, do you want to um, be my hospice nurse dash girlfriend? That sounds great, right? You ever had sex with a dead man? Yeah. Do you, want, do you want to start this thing that's doomed to end without, like, I understand, like, there's, there's a power and a beauty and, like, the, the, truly the most beautiful relationships on the planet are... I am dating this person through thick and thin, through through sickness and in health, through all that shit. Like that's the most beautiful test of a relationship and the yeah, hardest test. But of that's relationship. a that's a mutually agreed upon. That's that's essentially what marriage is. Like yes, the yeah. flip side is insane. It's like asking someone to marry you on their or have kids with you on the first date. Like that's that's probably the only corollary. Is like we had a great first date. I'm gonna put a baby in you. Like yeah. <laughs> there's. There's no perfect corollary to it, but it's that. So that's that's kind of all there is to explore about the first Meg Ryan. Second Meg Ryan is there to explore themes and also, yes, the fact that he comes in with his newfound, his new excited ideology. About, but even you know, then, like, he, he's a little hollow too because he at that point he hasn't found any meaning to it, right? That's the whole Ossie Davis stuff. Like, you don't even know what clothes you want. You don't know what you want to be like. He just now has a freedom but doesn't have anything that's personally resonant to him. So even his, like, you should do this too. At that point in the movie, hasn't brought him any actual joy. Yes, and that is why uh, we get to number three, which is like the most traditional Meg Ryan relationship. It's most understandable that they would maybe have a sense of success and yada yada. Um, and then they get to uh, complaint number three that I have about the movie, which is uh, Waponi Woo, Waponi. Waponio yeah. woo. I think whatever you're going to say is a 100% fair complaint and I'm not going to have any issues with it. Okay, so it does – okay, let's say uh, – let's just get the, the facts out of the way. They land on an island that was established by – it was a mix of native peoples plus Jews and Romans – they were a lost ship and they landed and they, they, they mixed with these native peoples and they formed their new culture. The new culture is obsessed with orange soda, which is purely like an absurdist joke. I don't think it has much meaning in the movie. No, well, no, it does actually because that's why no one wants to kill themselves anymore. Because the whole point is that every hundred years someone needs to jump into this volcano to sate the god inside so it doesn't destroy the island. But since the mining people have come – they introduced this orange soda that everyone's obsessed with. So now no one wants to sacrifice themselves for the island. They found some sense in this weird corporate good. Yeah, um, exactly. Okay, so that's, yeah. okay. That's something I missed on the first on this first watch. But um, my yeah, you're gonna agree with everything I say. Um, I think that the concept. Oh, so to to be to couch it, I think the concept is made less offensive by the fact that. It is they're, be, to, they're being exploited. Like, it is a rich person attempting to exploit them. Yes. But also the fact that they are supposed to be ethnically Jewish. And they... Uh, that Abe Vigoda and Nathan Lane are in there? Nathan Lane, Abe Vigoda, like, the, having white people in brown faces slightly couched by the fact that... Well, they're, they're not... It should, it, they're, I don't think they're in brown face. I think Abe Vigoda is for sure in brown face. Is he? I just thought he was wearing the makeup. 
Yeah, it's uh, he's he's wearing brown face. Um, okay, but the the but the, that stuff is, and they're playing. They're also wearing, more importantly, they're wearing like a sort of stereotype of indigenous wear yeah. of peoples of that region, and and it's like it's like kind of like hard to laugh at, and it's also there's not really like apart from all that, there's not really a joke there other than like. Ain't these people weird? So we get to the island. I understand they're supposed to be native peoples, all that, yada, yada. Um, Luckily, it's pretty much there's there's a couple good jokes in there. But like, I I agree. I I think this is the when the movie kind of loses some comedic thunder. I like Tom Hanks in those moments of him just being like, because you you just you just understand movies enough to expect that that's where the conflict is going to come in. Right. Where he's going to say, I have Meg Ryan. I'm in love. I can't do it. Instead, he's like, yeah, all right. Uh, uh, and I like Abe Vigoda's general kind of lack of pomp and circumstances. Great. You're the guy that's going to kill himself. So we're going to have a big feast and then you're going to jump in the volcano. And Tom Hanks is like, yep, okay. Like, that's what I agreed on. Like, all of that. Tom says, great, but the timing stinks. And then kisses her and then he walks back up to the volcano. <laughs> yeah, like the, the kind of matter of factness about – the whole process and the fact that Tom Hanks in a subversion of everything you recognize from movies, which is that he is going to find a new reason to live and have a new lease on life and and back out. And that's where, like, the final act is where he fights someone or something instead is like, yeah, well, I said I'd do it. Deal's a deal. Got that brain cloud. So, yeah, you know, I did find someone that made me happy. I'm very thankful for my life. Time to go jump in this volcano. And, like, so all that stuff is really funny. But it is very, you know, we talked about this on on Maverick, uh, that how is like the Mel Gibson movie the only good example of like a comedy depicting indigenous people that I can think of? Uh, not shocking, not excusable, uh, 90s depiction in a comedy for comedic purposes of indigenous people is garbage down. But the idea is like kind of like absurdly funny because like they've maintained all the big markers of their religion. Like um, yeah. like when they first come ashore, they're playing like an island version of Hava Nagila. Which is yeah. so fucking funny to me because like like it's uh it's them delivering on the concept immediately and then the, it it kind of fizzles out like the, the worst part isn't that it's it's doing this thing it's that it could have couched it with comedy better yeah and I I like the idea of the the exploitation aspect like poking at that a little more that like. You know, Lloyd Bridges is is manipulating them as well. And there's there probably is something if they wanted to do something different with the volcano that like even that is like some myth that's been injected to manipulate. Like that's the themes of the movie. That's where I always thought it was going, that there'd be like a, oh, we have been tricked into believing this to serve corporate interests. And it it does. You're right. Like, I think there's some good satirical or parody type routes and the movie sticks with like the uh, the lack of uh, pomp, but that's about that's about all. So let's talk about some scenes that we may have missed. Um, How did the ending work for you? Because like the ending I, I is a it. lot of a lot of fantastical shit at once, which usually this movie is pretty good about doing one crazy moment and then it waits two beats. You know, and then it has another crazy moment. It waits two beats. Like, how is it that it's like they get exploded out of the volcano and then they land in the ocean and then uh, they land on the suit and then they, the suitcases pop back up again? Like, oh, God, they saved us again. And then they get on the suitcases and then, 
a brain cloud? Isn't that fucking stupid? Like, like, how does it feel to you that they like they th- also throw away the brain clouds thing in such a in such a fast way? I love it. I love how it really did like subvert all of my expectations for even like this kind of goofy comedy. It really, I think that's why it goes into this unexpected place. And anytime a movie can surprise me or do the thing that other movies don't do, which is like hand waver away the entire plot driver in the brain cloud. And then when you hear that explanation, even though you've been bought into the brain cloud, because it's a fantastical movie or it's a movie with fantastical elements you're like, oh, yeah. Oh, duh. Everyone in this world thinks that's stupid, too. It just fooled a hypochondriac. That's funny. The way that, again, he doesn't back out. The way the stuff – like, I love all of that. I love – it's why I love Army of Darkness, right? It's like the, oh, we don't need to follow the movie rules. What if he just has a fucking gun and puts a chainsaw on his arm and then drives around in a car and kills zombies as opposed to the normal thing like, ah, oh, no gas or I can't show my gun because it'll change the timeline, you know? Like – Everyone loves those moments. Like, just do the thing that works best for the movie, even if it's not necessarily uh, expected or consistent or, like, what you're trained to think as an audience. Which, again, is probably why people, including my wife, only seen the back half of this went, well, this is so stupid. And it does it does feel – it does register, I think, to a lot of people as a uh, an ending that – cheats you or lies to you or like the movie has been pulling a big goof on you but when you think about the actual moment in the in the the room yeah even tom hanks was like what the fuck's a brain cloud and like you've never heard of a brain cloud before like it's it's a made-up fantastical thing why couldn't they wave it away with the same sense of like what the fuck we made this thing up we can make this thing go away that's why i really like it it's just it happens so fast after them getting shot out of the volcano. I wish they could have yeah. found a different way to get them off the island. Also, the fact that all the native peoples get introduced and then drown and the movie just sort of hand waves that away is kind of like hard because like this movie. But is... again, that I that's, I think the, the themes of the movie make the randomness of them getting saved and the fatalism of everyone dying as a result kind of work in the broader scope. Yeah, that's I mean, that's like a subjective like feel thing. There's no I don't think there's any like logical argument that someone could lay out in a fucking YouTube video that would make that make sense or not make sense to anybody. It either feels right or it feels wrong. Yeah. And, and I, I, I yeah, really not like, Tom Hanks with Meg Ryan, too. I can't force you to see the way I view this movie slash life. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's 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 I think that's good. It's a movie that should be discovered as it comes along as its own thing. And I I, I am charmed by it. I, I'm definitely enjoyed the hell out of it, but I it's not gonna be like an instant classic for me, unfortunately, but it is going to be something where I'm like, Oh, this was a movie that was thrown in the garbage, it was accepted as is it as a complete bomb on every level except for by a few spare reviewers, and now this growing cult. It's not that. It's actually a very unique vision. It's a, it's a vision that feels mostly uncompromised, and I'm sure there were tons of compromises made along the way. Like, the, the, the aggressive use of music feels like a compromise for me, because sometimes I'm like, this moment would have hit harder if there wasn't something to make us feel better. Uh, hearing this moment in the, with the context of pop music behind it, this sad moment with this context of jazz music behind it, behind it kind of like guides our hand a little too heavily. That feels a little like 
producer finicked with, but like the rest of it does not. It feels like a true vision, and like I'm really glad we got to watch it, and, it, and I'm really glad that we kicked off the month with this because it's a nice way to ease yourself into rom coms because like sometimes rom coms can feel like their creative vision is so milk toast and so soft, but this is not that. This is this is something truly uh, this is something truly unique, something you don't get pretty much ever and and, out of the, and because it was a bomb no movies ripped it off yeah i do wish from the pop music standpoint i know that beetlejuice kind of stole a thunder a couple years earlier but i do wish they had worked in day day <laughs> do you know what this movie has in common with beetlejuice um i think i just said it but oh yeah ahead. that uh second thing that it has in common Production designer, Bo Welch. So I noticed movie, that. So he has incredible production design. Like, at times it feels very artificial, but in a way that, like, really helps couch its sense of fantasy and its sense of whimsy. And it, it, it's artificial not in a way that you're like, oh, is this not shot on a set? Like, nice try tr- trying to pull the wool over our eyes. Instead, it's shot yeah. in an artificial way where you're like, oh, you're helping us understand that this is, like, a little bit of a fable as opposed to um, a literal, realistic, romantic comedy. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I know. It's what they all say. Bono's production design. Bono's. Yeah, no, I love this. I, I actually see this movie as, like, in the same way that uh, Christians probably see like Passion of the Christ is like this is what this is what the religion's all about. Like I actually see like my philosophy of life. Like this is a religious movie for me. Like just from a like philosophy and like the way I view the world, as I've stated. Uh, and it's such like it, it's not surprising that I connected with this movie because those. And and in a way that like I wouldn't expect everyone to like that that moment where he sees the moon was the point you know this time and the first time I saw it where it's just like a perfect confluence of like oh I I get this like I get or at least my subjective view of like I get what it's saying I agree with what it's saying I love everything about this and that you know when that happens um. It's easy to fall in love with 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 something, and it helps that this movie also ticks off so many of my other just like stuff I like in movies boxes. Like I like movies that don't seem preoccupied with like following rules, like the the rules of cinema, the expectations of cinema goers, and I I think that's something that a lot of cinephiles like, because we watch so many movies that when we're surprised, and not surprised by like a twist that we didn't see coming, but like truly surprised that this that a movie doesn't seem to have seen all the other movies and is just like going in its own idiosyncratic vision. Um, that's exciting to me. Um, it's why I I've talked so much about liking like maximalism in, in, in movies and just throwing shit at the screen and seeing what works. Uh, this feels like uh, not as extreme as some of those other movies we've talked that fall into that category, but done with like these huge movie stars, I suppose right before or right around the time they were becoming huge movie stars in this genre that's supposed to follow a very specific formula that would only get defined more and more um, as the 90s went on. And it just does this thing, like you said, like there is not, there's definitely other versions of this, 
but there's not a version like this because by definition to have something this uh unique and that it's still uh it's still like reads as unique seeing it you know 29 years after it came out by almost definition no one's repeated it because uh how how could you this is just this own weird artifact and it is funny that like we are from from the hanks ryan line that we're going to be drawing through these three movies like they actually become they start out in this like barely recognizable as a romantic comedy to the point that it made audiences angry uh and they didn't like it to uh the most like cookie cutter this follows all the romantic comedy rules and you've got mail and yet both of those because of our two leads and everything else going on like both ends of the spectrum work really really well and i'm not i'm not going to be surprised when we get through this that i think our our reaction to this month as a whole will probably be like hey those two should make another movie together uh, because like they should they they have a chemistry that's that it, that exists across characters in this movie and about like tones in these other movies we're about to talk about yeah i think that's a perfect way to end this episode because like yeah there's there's no way to really sum up the magic of this movie without seeing it um but we can at least make our best pitch on why it's important and not some piece of cultural trash that just happened to float along because tom hanks and meg reiner in it and dan hedaya yeah, don't forget the day. Actually, you should really say that Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, Meg Ryan, Meg Ryan. <laughs> was there a trailer at the time that was like Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan and Meg Ryan and Meg Ryan? I guess she was too young in her career to do that. No, but if they did, they would have had to do it like questioning. Meg Ryan and Meg Ryan and Meg? Like they would have had to get the movie trailer guy would have had to be at more and more ins- like inscrutable. Like... <laughs> Yeah, it feels like you're put, but there I there I see them right before my eyes. Trailer audience, clearly three different characters, all played by Meg Ryan. You should see this movie, <laughs> and, and then and then it just shows a picture of Dan Hedaya. Is this Meg Ryan? <laughs> Who in this movie is not Meg Ryan? No, that star of the Tortellis, Dan Hedaya. <laughs> um, <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, next week we're doing uh, Sleepless in Seattle with Carrie Nelson. Uh, who was sending us messages tonight after she watched it. Uh, I'm actually, I haven't seen that movie since it was on VHS. Uh, Like, that's how I owned it. Um, And I guess there's some very surprising thing at the beginning that I'm I'm definitely misremembering because she was talking about it and I don't know what it was. So I'm very excited to remind myself and then we're doing You've Got Mail, which is a movie uh, that I can watch anytime so much. I think I watched it six months ago doing something in the background Uh, and then ending with The Money Pit and uh, IQ. Albert Einstein helped Meg Ryan and Tim Robbins find love. Yeah. Old Bert Einstein. Cupid. Modern era. Yeah. I've not seen Money Pit. I did see IQ. Financial hardship. Cupid of the modern era. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure he's wearing other things other than a black t-shirt. So historical accuracy. Ding. <laughs> Good night. I don't know. Good night. Um, See you but, next week. But yeah, thank oh. you so much for joining us. And we hope you can join us on the uh, the less weird ones, but still definitely worthy of discussion. Uh, Good Night. Night.
cover the waterfront I'm watching the sea Will the one I love be coming back to me? I cover the waterfront in search of my... Hey folks, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we've got just a few quick announcements for you. There ain't nothing in the rule book that says that we can't do some of our own plugs, baby. If you'd like to talk to us, uh, tell us we're stupid, tell us we're beautiful. The quickest way to get to us is our Facebook group, facebook.com slash we love to watch, or our website, wltwpodcast.com. Leave us a comment, tell us we're doing a good job. Only tell us we're doing a good job. We're so sensitive. We're sensitive boys. We're soft boys. And uh, if you'd like to help other people, if you enjoy our show and want other people to be able to listen to this fine, fine program that we produce at no cost, we don't get any money for this. You guys have yet to pay us anything. We live and we breathe off of good reviews from iTunes. So if you would please go to iTunes, review our show, give us a positive rating. We would love to get more and more people involved in this show and this community. I know you hear it all the time, but it really does help. And we're also available if you don't use iTunes. We're also available on Google Music, Stitcher, Tune in. We're currently on SoundCloud. We'll take that out if SoundCloud goes away. <laughs> That's it. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned, guys, on our Facebook page, especially. We're going to have a lot more polls, a lot more prizes, and a lot more uh, interaction with you guys. So keep it tuned in. Uh, let us know what you guys are thinking. And again, above all else, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch.